Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. fortunate enough to have with us today Daniel Coyle. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. If you're on video, this is what it looks like. You should run out and buy it, which I'm sure you're going to want to do after this conversation. He also wrote The Talent Code, which was a fantastic book and also a New York Times bestselling book. The Little Book of Talent, The Secret Race, Lance Armstrong's War, and Hardball. Um, Coyle works as an advisor to the Cleveland Indian. He lives at Cleveland Indians. He lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Homer, Alaska. He grew up in Alaska, and he kind of goes back and forth between uh, Alaska and Ohio. Um, and uh, he's the book is an awesome book, and he's a really great guy. Dan, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Dan, you, you wrote this book, uh, The Culture Code, and it's very much about teams. It's about culture and it's about teams. And we'll get into the distinction between those two uh, or kind of how they interplay with each other, I'm sure. But the first is a very basic uh, question, which is that I receive, you know, kind of a million books uh, as people uh, talk to me about coming on the podcast. And there's a lot of them on teams. And I'm wondering sort of and I'm sure you've read a million books on teams. So the question is, what are you adding to the conversation with this one? What what motivated you to write this one? Yeah, it's funny. I kind of got obsessed with a, with a mystery. I write about high performing individuals and high performing teams all the time, and through a career as a journalist, and I guess a frustrated doctor. I was going to be a doctor growing up. Well, I didn't and know that. Fell into almost went to med school. Came this close to going to med school. Fell into journalism and got obsessed with this question of like, what makes great people tick? And and wrote this book called The Talent Code, which which were in which I visited individuals, these talent hotbeds, really, really talented individuals. And while I was there, um, I saw some things that got me obsessed with the mystery of like, what, what makes a great team? I remember specifically, I was in Spartak, uh, this, this tennis club outside of Moscow, and it's, it produces more champions than the entire United States, actually, women, women champion tennis players. And a new player came on the court, and the coach walked over to that player, and the player was really nervous, young player, and, and the coach walked over and said, hey, I'm glad you're here. I want you to do something for me. And she tossed the girl a tennis ball and the girl caught it. And it was like this tiny interaction that could easily have been overlooked. And yet it was massive. It, it, the girl went from outsider to being insider. And so I got obsessed, like what happened there? What, what's that all about? And that sent me on a, on a journey that, you know, I ended up actually also through the work with the Cleveland Indians, got to be around a team that was getting better and better and better and better and having all this great chemistry. And those things kind of combined to send me on this journey of around the world looking at looking at great teams, looking at teams in the top 1% of their domain who have are acknowledged by experts as having great cult, great sustainable performance and great culture. And it was Pixar, Navy SEAL Team 6, Zappos, IDO, the San Antonio Spurs. And I was fortunate enough to get inside each of those places and really embed myself and see what what happens on the ground? I come from the point of view of a journalist, and so I'm looking for proof. I'm looking to see what, what how they communicate, how they lead. Um, and so what I wanted to add to the conversation, I guess, was a sense of reality. Like so many of these books sort of float above the air and uh, above, the, above the landscape. And so I wanted to come in from a really hard journalist point of view and say, okay, let's push all the, the lingo aside. 
what, what's happening there? What's the pattern of behavior? The human brain is designed to combine into groups in certain ways. What's that pattern? Right. And you came up with three things, right, in your research. You came up with you know, three big categories, safety, shared risk, and purpose. And those resonated with me also. Can you give just a sentence or two about each one so that you ground us in the, in the reality of what you mean by that? Yeah, like a big picture, what three things? There's three things that every group has to do, to serve, whether they're a group of honeybees or a group of Navy SEALs or a team at Zappos or us talking on the phone here. It's like they, you need to connect, right? You need to, you need to actually have something that connects you into a group. Then you need to share information, right? And then you need to have a direction, like where are we going together? Whether No matter what you are, those three functions have to happen. And you can almost picture a flock of birds or a school of fish moving through a complicated landscape. They got to connect. They got to cooperate, share information, and they have to have a direction in order to function as a group. And so the way our brains are built is there's this deep grammar that we use to connect. We use safety, you know, signals of safety, this, this language of safety. When you feel safe, you will connect with someone. Next, how do we cooperate? How do we create and share information? That's, we do that through sharing vulnerability, by, by showing weakness and openness. That's how we share information. And then how do we determine direction? That is about purpose and story. So um, the large picture is that this, if you sort of align your behaviors and get tuned into these signals, it doesn't have much to do with words, actually. It's kind of funny. It's like words are just noise most of the time. But if you get into what, what the scientists would call signaling behaviors, signal connection, signal safety, signal vulnerability to create exchange of information and signal purpose to create a shared direction. So it's more like leadership is a, you know, we think about culture as a soft skill, found exactly the opposite. It's about clarity. Like great leaders send these signals really clearly to connect, to share information and, and to create purpose. So it's not this like, oh, we just have a good vibe. We just have good chemistry in our team. Uh-uh. No, there's this, there's an exchange going on, a pattern behavior over and over again. Let me ask you a question because it, I'm curious about the way you've described this. And I just, I just came off of teaching a five-day leadership program. And I was talking a lot about emotion, emotional courage, the willingness to feel things. And we did some exercises around it. And one of the people in the program said to me, you know, it, it helps me. And this was sort of like a, not, a, not a sort of quote unquote soft guy. And he said, you know, it helps me. When, I was having a hard time connecting when you said emotion. And then what he next said surprised me. He said, but if you use, because I'm talking to them about where they feel it in their body. If you're feeling something, where in your body do you feel it? He said, if you use the word energy instead of emotion, that would be helpful to me. And I think of energy, you know, like when you walk in the room and you feel someone's energy, like you feel like a certain way. I think of that as much more soft language than emotion, which feels to me harder. And, and, I'm, and you're talking about these behaviors, you know, very concrete, tangible, visible things that people do, maybe not words, that create a sense of safety or project uh, a sense of vulnerability. And I'm curious whether that word energy, like whether it resonates, whether you feel like people have a certain energy that, that articulates or that projects safety. And if that is something beyond, you know, saying a word or tossing a ball, or whether that energy is built out of saying a word and tossing a ball. Is my question, my question make sense? That's interesting. No, that's interesting. There's so many different ways to kind of get at this, and it comes down to the feeling you're creating in the other person and being in tune with it. There are many ways that that tennis coach could have gone over and tossed a ball to the to the little girl to welcome her. Right? There's a lot of different ways she could have done it, but the authenticity 
of that interaction. That's another word maybe we can throw into our soup here. It's like the author, that, she, that, that, that what she created a feeling that she intended to create. Um, she was in tune with what she was creating in that, in that person. And I think great leaders do that. There's a, there's kind of a, there's a moment uh, in hanging out with the San Antonio Spurs, uh, Greg Popovich. They had this, I tell the story in the book, they had this devastating loss. And typically, you know, NBA finals, they were about to win the championship, they get beaten. His response um, was to gather everyone and to have a dinner together. I love this story. And he, and, and one of the co- assistant coaches talked about seeing him as devastated as any, it was the moment right before the bus where the players pulled up. He was as devastated as any human has ever been. And he takes a deep breath and he gets control over his emotions. And then he starts, the bus pulls up and he starts greeting people warmly at the door and creating almost like it turned into like this happy occasion. It was an incredible feat of communication and leadership. But at the very bottom is this emotional athleticism, this discipline that he has in order to kind of get over himself, which is really, really hard to do, to get over you know, he'd been trying for this championship for, for decades. His whole his whole dream had just been shattered, but he was able in that moment to take a breath, get over it, and and put his attention into creating the kinds of interactions that he wanted to create. And to me, it's just a jaw-dropping act of leadership and discipline, an emotional discipline. And there are so many things that can get in the way of it. So one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that he he, first of all, was clear about the outcome he wanted to create, and then he made a decision about how he needed to show up in order to create that outcome. And then he was able to gain control over his emotions. And one of the things that I think gets in the way in that particular situation, I thought of Popovich and the story that you told in the book around it, which is that there's a lot of people I know who would say, I don't want to make people feel better after a loss like that. I want them to, because otherwise they're not going to be afraid of losing next time. And I want them to see how serious it is. So they work even harder in order to get it. And, and um, I, I guess my question is, what do you say to that person who says that to you? I think uh, there's often this dichotomy that we carry around with us that sort of says, I can either be tough or I can be nice, that I have a choice. I have to choose between those two. And what I saw over and over in, in the best cultures that I visited, and I visited some pretty good places, is that they're really, they're really tough. They're really excellent. And they're really nice. Those two things are a false dichotomy. You don't have to choose to be nice or tough. As one of the assistant coach puts it, Coach Pop does two things. He tells you the truth, which is really hard to hear sometimes. He's very tough, as we know, and he loves you to death. So he is giving you the most high-octane feedback you've ever gotten. At the same time, he's making a reservation for you and your wife at a restaurant and ordering the wine for you and asking how it went afterwards. So those things are not – you should not – keep those things apart. You can actually do them both and they strengthen each other and they both build a relationship. So I think that idea that, well, I'm going to put on my tough hat now and I'm just going to, those guys can tough it out. That's, 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 that, that can work in some situations, actually, you know, being an authoritarian leader works for simple problems. It works for, um, sort of simple actions. If you want your group to do very simple things, but when things are complex or fast moving or rely on learning, um, you really need to continually sort of, as Popovich would say, fill their cups, like fill people's cups so that they have the energy and the connection and the sense of belonging and safety, which is the foundation of all good teamwork. And it also seems to really take a tremendous amount of humility. And, and you know, we briefly talked about this, but I, I, I feel like in sometimes in my experience with senior leaders in organization, there is 
an inverse relationship between how smart they are and how capable they are of creating safety. And it's almost like they're, they're smart and they, they either work too hard to show people that they're smart or they have they think they have a better answer or maybe they do have a better answer. And yet the way they approach that gets in the way of creating climate of safety and works sort of counter to what they're trying to produce in the organization. That's so true. I haven't have thought it quite as clearly as you have, have expressed it right there. But yeah, there is an, kind of an inverse relationship between IQ and the ability to do this, or at least raw intellectual horsepower. Um, I kept meeting the same people uh, that were very smart, but they and, and they probably did have a lot of the answers. But where they were really smart is in realizing the impossibility of them truly having all the answers. They could have some suggestions, they could have some context, but they were constantly focused on how do I get a conversation going around this and, and support that conversation. Um, and there was a phrase that I heard uh, from actually from Dave Cooper, who's a SEAL Team 6 commander who trained the people who got who, who did the bin Laden raid. Um, and his phrase was a backbone of humility. And I love it because we typically think of humility as meekness and as, as being sort of subservient in some way. And that's not accurate, actually. When you're talking about a, a group in which knowledge is distributed and, and problems are complicated, um, humility is, is, is not an option. It's a, it's a biological requirement. And the discipline with which you need to wield it is impressive. It's a strength when a leader says, admits some weakness or, or, or creates a conversation that, that actually shows people the truth of what's going on. That's not, that's not weakness. That's being really, really smart because you're not just sort of leading, you're helping people discover the answer for themselves. And, and you say something I think really true and very interesting and also something I hadn't really thought of before, but feels really important, which is that vulnerability precedes right? Safety, it precedes shared risk, the ability to give shared risk, to take shared risk. And so often people wait for a safe environment in order to be vulnerable. And yet you, you can't create that safe environment without being vulnerable. What have you seen? And I'm always interested in this because when you look at great teams or great people, you're looking generally at the people who are already exhibiting those behaviors. But when people are reading these books and trying to apply them, they're in a place where they're not already demonstrating and they have to learn. And somehow the skill of having the characteristics versus the skill of developing them feels like a very different skill. And I'm curious what advice you have or if you've seen people who didn't have that kind of courageous vulnerability and then developed it and, and what they did. Like what kind of advice can you give people to develop the courage in a sense to take those kinds of risks and to create the culture within their teams that will help them to be most successful? That's a cool question. It's funny, actually, I just got back from San Diego where we did this event with a big group, this uh, giant company, and they were struggling with the same thing. They, they needed to collaborate better. They needed to be more open with each other. So what we came up with was their leader stood up and actually Dave Cooper has a, has a saying, he says, the most important four words a leader can say are, I screwed that up. And so the leader got up and told a story about something he screwed up at. Boom. Step two, everybody at the different tables got a partner and they each shared loop. The vulnerability loop is the key word here. They each shared a story. And then they reflected on the reasons why they don't tend to share those stories. What barriers are there? What, what fears are in the way? And then they shared those out. And it was, you know, it took 40 minutes. It was, it was really a small, a small thing, but I think it, it, it contained most of the ingredients of this process, which is permission first. If you, 
if your leadership isn't going to be open, then it's probably, you, you know, you really need to have that be part of it. That needs to be a key part of it. And their vulnerability can't be, you know, like my, my biggest mistake was perfection. Well, that's just kind of funny. The guy did that a little bit. I hope yeah. he's not. But he kind of half-assed it a little bit. It was like, I had this project that was too successful. It's something like, <laughs> but it still worked. That was the interesting part. It still worked because he was at least from where he was to where he, he showed a weakness and, and everybody responded to it and everybody was ready. And, and so that, that sort of stepwise, um, you know, you sort of have to sort of crack it open and the, and the root word of vulnerability is wound. So expecting that it feels kind of funny and difficult and weird um, and the other key word in here is sort of a loop that it, it's not a one way street. You know, you have to create pairs where each person is sort of opening up a little bit and sharing something. And, you know, it is something that feels strange at first to, to do that. However, like the analogy I have is it's sort of like, uh, getting in shape physically. Like we know that when we experience pain, we get stronger in the gym or running and, it's exactly the same in group life. Like that sort of little pain of vulnerability of opening up about weakness is what creates closeness. We typically think about it, as you say, exactly wrong. We think, oh, I'm going to trust you and then I'm going to open up and be vulnerable. And that's exactly backwards. Those moments of vulnerability create trust. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm also thinking about a team I know where the leader is very willing to be vulnerable mm -hmm. um, but, but lacks some of the strength necessary to create that standard within the group. And there's a senior leader who's the exact opposite, who's not only the exact opposite, but a little bit of a bully. And, and the, maybe not a little bit. And, and the fact that he allows that, he allows that behavior to exist kills the, like it, it dilutes any positive impact that his, his own vulnerability would be. His vulnerability then, then ends up reading as weakness. So it's kind of like it seems like there's this combination of saying I'm going to be vulnerable and intolerant of that the the kind of behavior that um, that dings the safety that I'm creating in the group. Right, the backbone of humility there. The again. backbone of humility. And the other thing that helps people, I think, in their move to make this part of daily life is to frame it around learning. When you talk about what you're bad at, that can either be framed as you're pretty bad at that, like that's incompetence, or it can be learning. And I, I saw tons of examples of that. I saw a really vivid one at Pixar where um, the leader, Ed Catmull, uh, actually I, I heard this story 10 years after it happened. That's how resonant of a story it was. He came up to some young engineers who were working on some new way of coding and he watched them for a while and they were kind of nervous, the boss is watching them. And then he said to them this one sentence that they remembered 10 years later. He said, hey, when you guys are done, could you come up to my office and teach me how to do that? Like super simple. Great. But when you frame vulnerability around learning, you create – what, what an incredible signal of, of learning and of saying, I want to learn from you. Please learn from me. And so it's, it's – these are simple signals, um, but they carry a lot of impact. You know, so much of this is around communication. And you, you – like when I look at a lot of the examples in the book, it's like they're the – we really have to be so skilled at communicating a way that our intention matches our impact. So that, you know, what we're, what we're trying to get across does, and it requires a tremendous amount of skill as communicators. Did you find that to be true in what you saw? Absolutely. And, and it came down to just the tiniest nuance. Even there was something that one of the Navy SEAL commanders told me where he said, your face 
has two settings. It's either closed or open. And he was even talking about the frontalis muscle here. And and all the good leaders I saw, they they had this open face. And it's not a coincidence. This tiny, tiny nuance that you think, is that really important? The answer is yes. It, yes, it is really important. And and you keep seeing that pattern over and over again where these – and the other piece of it that, that comes to mind is you know, all these – a lot of the leaders that I met were extraordinary learners. And learning happens in a loop. You've got experience and then you have reflection. And I think in our modern – in most of our lives, we're, we got plenty of experience. We have no shortage of experience. But where we do have a shortage is of reflection, of having habitual opportunities to capture what happened that day to reflect on it and to, to distill out some something useful. And so keeping journals, keeping notes, keeping files on your phone, taking the getting into the rhythm of learning where you, you get the maximum, you take experience in, and then you get something out of it. And so I, I think that that was something that all the, the leaders that I met did and something that I think everybody could steal from. What gets in the way? Why do people, I mean, it's so simple and straightforward. Why do people not do this? I think it's just the rush of life. I mean, every there's there's always that that pressure of the next thing and the next call, and and life comes at us faster than it ever has. And so to actually carve out time for some solitude and mindfulness can be one of the most powerful things you can do. Um, it's it feels inefficient, uh, but actually it's a hell of a lot more efficient than just racing from fire to fire. Did you did you find um, low risk ways of starting to demonstrate these behaviors? I mean, I think about the the leader who is hesitant to be vulnerable because they think it will read as weakness or they think they're smarter than the group. And like all these, the, I'm kind of listening in my head to the kinds of things people might say, you know, that might make them resistant to connection or right. resistant to, you know, focusing on purpose in a way that draws people along with them as opposed to telling them what to do. Can you offer some, you know, kind of low risk or lower risk or ways of dipping your feet in the water around these behaviors? You bet. Here's one. Uh, one of my favorites is from Laszlo Bach, who now works at Huma, who used to be the head of people analytics at Google. He calls it the two-line email. You send it to your group and you say, hey, two lines, please tell me one thing you want me to stop doing and one thing you want me to keep doing. I just did this with my children. Did you really? I did. Oh, I just did this. I was on a on a chairlift in Jackson Hall, and we were in like a gondola, so they couldn't get away. We were in, you know, like a, a five person thing, and I said, "Tell me, you know, like one thing you really love and want me to continue doing as your dad, and one thing that gets in your way." And it was I learned a tremendous amount. What I learned was, they like that I'm funny, yeah. <laughs> and. I, and in one form or other, they said, I'm not patient enough. Like I don't listen and I interrupt, you know, like the youngest was you interrupt me all the time. And, and, and I said, really? And he starts talking and then I interrupted him and they go, yeah, and you're funny. But, but I, but it's, it was, I really like it changed the way I parent. I realized I'm not slowing down enough for what my kids need. So I, I think that's a great thing. Sorry, continue the story, but it just. So cool. I love that. I love that. I guess the, the the other thing I would say, kind of easy, is is think about use the use the following phrase: "Tell me more." I think a lot of times when we get a question as a leader, our instinct, more than an instinct, like this reflex, is to answer. Right? You know, someone brings you a problem, I've got the answer right here, and you try to add value. And adding value is often not the smart move. The smart move is to unearth, to surface what's really going on, surface the tension, 
Um, why did they come to you? If someone came to you with a problem, um, the key phrase to use is, is tell me more about that. And then the, I guess the, the, the next thing I would say is pay attention to the size of your lunch table. Um, you know, when you look at the, at the research and you look at kind of the sociometrics around this stuff, people who eat lunch at their desk alone are missing out on a huge opportunity and people who eat with one person are missing out on one. And there are a lot of companies who've gone to these sort of bigger lunch tables in order to create that kind of dense layered, you know, multiple interaction that can drive connection and creativity and create, uh, create closeness. Um, I just, love how concrete that is. That's so smart. And then at, at dinner, just to continue on the parenting thing, you know, the, the conversation you always have as a parent with your kids is like, what'd you do today? And then they, that conversation has never gone well in the history of humanity. Like you've ne it's never happened that you've had a good conversation. Um, so instead of that, you lead with your failure, find something you messed up that day, lead with that and then see what happens. Um, you'll be creating some vulnerability loose. You'll be creating some conversation, sending a really big signal. Hey, perfection is not what we're about. Like let's learn and let's laugh and let's, uh, let's talk about some fun stuff. So, um, yeah, those would be the, the things to kind of start. Sure. That's great. I'm curious, uh, uh, Dan, how this book and the research in this book has changed you and your behavior. How do you do things differently than maybe you were doing before? Yeah, it's funny that dinner table thing for sure. Um, I coached a team and actually they were a writing team. It was a writing competition here. And so it's middle schoolers doing short stories and then getting, you know, rated. It's really fun. Um, and it was a small school. And at first few times I did it, I was the, the sage on the stage. I had the answers. I was like the guy, you know, and I'm a real writer too. So yeah pressed and and I would give these really fascinating lectures I thought and it wasn't it was okay it wasn't wasn't working great um, and after I got into this I, I completely sort of flipped it and just I brought in examples of mistakes I had made in my, my manuscripts all marked up I, I I really tried to first of all create a lot of safety by talking about what they loved writing about I used pop songs we'd analyze pop songs we created uh, this sort of this ring of feedback where everybody's giving each other feedback. I really took it from being, um, the, you know, the source of knowledge about writing to creating this really integrated team where they were giving each other really good feedback and, and learning every day. And we ended up, you know, it was really fun having a, we had a pretty successful run and, uh, and it was, it was fun to be able to, um, tap into that because they're not difficult to do. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about emotion in your world because that to me is at the core of it where you've got to be willing to give up your conventional model of that authority figure um, in order to do something that is not any harder. Um, it requires a little more reflection. It requires a little more uh, kind of attention to nuance and detail, but it's, it's actually easier. It's actually an easier way to lead than if you have to carry all that knowledge around and have to be the man all the time and be the answer and be the source of everything. It's actually much easier when someone has a problem to say, tell me more. What do you think? You know, because they probably have the answer way better than you do. Um, so yeah, it was, it would definitely sort of had, has had, has had a big impact on the way you approach, approach groups and teams. Right. And I think about these leaders who try to, who, who, who feel like they, you know, when someone comes in with a problem, they do have the answer. They really feel like they have the answer and they give the answer. And then because they're in a, a hierarchical rank kind of role, then the person probably doesn't follow up with what's going on. And, and one of the sad parts about that, besides the fact that we're sub-optimizing from a team perspective, is it really isolates the leader. They do end up eating at their desk because they become disconnected from the people around. 
And it's very lonely. I mean, that's sort of why people talk about leadership being lonely. So you're, you're not only creating, and the culture code, this book, doesn't only sort of help you figure out how do you, it doesn't only solve for the team, but it solves for a, an element of leadership that I think most leaders often struggle with. Dan, it is such a pleasure talking to you. The book is The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Dan Coyle wrote it. Um, I really, it's one of my favorite books of the year, and I really uh, enjoyed reading it. And I really appreciate you being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much. It's been so, so fun knocking around with you, Peter. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.